Acts chapter 14. The title for the message is Left for Dead. Left for Dead. Anybody ever feel they've been left for dead? Um, I want to go through Acts 14. There's a real benefit to using a reading plan and a stopwatch. There's a real benefit to using a reading plan. Um, here's one I use. I used it before years ago and then I picked it up and used it again this year. It's, it takes you through the whole Bible in one year. It's about four chapters a day. It actually takes you through the New Testament twice and the Psalms twice and the rest of the Bible once over the course of a year. And it's really good to follow it because you read in places that you might not normally go to. And you read over things over and over again that you think, I've read that before and I've read that before. But more and more, especially over this last few months, I have found myself reading quite familiar passages and just little incidents, little, just a little verse here and there. And I feel God just stir, stirring things. And it's lovely. But there are places in your Bible that you might not go to that frequently unless you've got something that's guiding you towards them. So I really recommend using one. But on Saturday, 27th of July, I read this chapter in the morning and was really just moved by a couple of verses. I'm going to go through the first sort of 18 verses or so quite quickly just to give you an overview. And then we'll linger on the, on the point that I think God wants us to linger on this morning. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is living and it's active and it's powerful. And when accompanied by your powerful Holy Spirit, great things are achieved when the word and spirit work together. I thank you that no matter how many times we read this book, read over these accounts of what happened in the early church, you still shine the light on new things. You speak to us in new ways in different seasons. And Father, I ask that your word and spirit together would do something powerful in the hearts of everyone here. In Jesus' name, amen. So Acts 14, verse 1. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went, as usual, into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles, that's non-Jews if you're not familiar with it, Great number of Jews and Gentiles believed, but the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds. Hold that phrase. Poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among the Gentiles and the Jews together with their leaders to mistreat them and to stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country where they continue to preach the good news. We'll stop there and we'll pick up in, in, in a moment and, and keep going. But just to give you the, the overview of where we are, Paul and Barnabas are in a place called Iconium and they are preaching the good news. Not preaching the bad news. We've talked about this before. We have a message that is good news. It is life. It is hope. It is restoration. It is relationship with God. It is not bad news. The gospel is good news. And as they preach it, a huge number of people, both Jewish people and non-Jewish people, are believing in Jesus that Paul is preaching to them. 
But there are other Jews who don't like it. And they're not content just to say, I don't like this and walk away and get on with whatever they're doing. They want to put a stop to it. They hate Paul, they hate Barnabas, they hate Jesus, and they hate the good news. So they want to put an end to it. And therefore what they do in verse 2 is they come and they poison the minds of the people that are hearing Paul. We'll talk a bit more about that a bit later. And they plot to stone them. Now God's doing powerful things. God is, is, he is sort of putting his seal of approval on Paul and Barnabas by working miracles. As they preach, miracles are taking place. But yet, whenever the hostility rises up against them, they decide to move on and they go to a different city called Lystra, about 60 miles away. So they've been in Iconium, they've been threatened, people have been poisoned in their minds, and they have moved on to Lystra. So let's pick it up in verse 8. In Lystra there sat a man crippled in his feet, who was lame from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, The gods have come to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. So they show up in Lystra. They begin to preach again. There are miracles again. But the people misunderstand. And they start to think that the false gods of the Greeks have come among them. And they reckon that Barnabas, who had to be called Barney for short, Barnabas was Zeus. And Paul was Hermes. You know Hermes that delivers stuff? Hermes was the messenger of the gods. He was the one that delivered messages from, uh, from Zeus. So because Paul was doing the speaking, they called him Hermes because he was the one delivering the message. And they want to worship them. Two men, Paul and Barnabas. And they decide that they're going to worship these two men instead of worshiping the God that these two men are telling them about. And Paul and Barnabas, when you read on verse 14 and following, they will have none of it. They just, they won't allow it. And they they say, uh, men, why are you doing this? We're only human like you. We're bringing you good news. And the good news is this. You need to turn away from worthless things to the living God. Now, you have to keep doing that for your whole life, even as you walk with God. You've got to keep turning away from worthless things. Because I don't know about you, but worthless things have a strange way of finding their way into my mind and into my heart and into my life. And they keep coming back again and again and again and trying to consume me. Worthless things. So we constantly are turning away from worthless things, these idols, these false gods, to the living God, who Paul then speaks about in terms of, of creation. And still in verse 18, the crowds want to worship him. Now, verse 19 or 20 is where I want to linger. This is what I read a few weeks ago and has just been turning over again and again ever since. Do you remember those Jews in verse 2 who had poisoned the minds of those that Paul was speaking to and Barnabas as well? They come back. It's about 60 miles from Iconium, which was the first city Paul was in, to Lystra, which is where he is now. 
And they are so determined that they want to shut him down and shut him up that they follow him all the way, about three or four days walk between the two cities. So they can continue their work of poisoning the minds of the people. Opposition is good at tracking you down. You stink and I stink and opposition is a good sniffer dog and it will find you. You go 60 miles away from the opposition, it will track you down and it will find you and it will come again. The opposition comes and an amazing thing happens. In verse 19, it says, These Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, that's the guys that are trying to poison people's minds, and won the crowd over. Now just think about that for a minute. This is probably a couple of hours after the crowd wanted to worship Paul and Barnabas. Wanted to to raise them up and put them on a pedestal and praise them. A couple of hours later, they have been won over by these other guys and they actually now want to kill Paul and Barnabas. Now that's within a couple of hours. Going from worshipping them and getting the, the, the bull to sacrifice it to them to wanting to kill them. People can be so fickle. And celebrity in the church is a really dangerous thing. You see, these guys in the preceding verses, they want to worship Paul. They want to worship Barnabas. They want to put them up on a pedestal where no human being should ever be. And again this week, another you know, prominent Christian sort of celebrity figure has, has, has gone online and said they're massively struggling with their faith. A songwriter, really good songwriter. We sing some of this guy's songs or some of the songs that he's contributed to. Really good. Thankfully, he's come back on and said he hasn't completely lost it, but he's really, really struggling. But celebrity culture in the church is a dangerous thing, and people just can't cope with it. It is your, Our shoulders are not designed to carry that yoke. And with the internet and with TV and all of that, it just takes people and pushes them to a level of, of public exposure that the devil just goes after them like mad because he knows if I can knock that one down, it will affect millions. Celebrity culture is a dangerous thing, but this crowd that wanted to put celebrity status on Paul have now turned on him in the same day. People can be so fickle, but poison can be so effective. Yeah, term poisoned the minds. I was reading about poison. This is your wee chemistry snippet for, for today. I'm trying to get back into the groove for September. About 50 milligrams of cyanide will kill you. There's a poison, I'm not going to say the name of it because I'll mess it up, but there's a poison that's produced by anaerobic bacteria that is so deadly that 1 times 10 to the minus 7 grams will kill you. Now what that means in terms that most of us should be able to understand a bit better than that is 1 gram of it would kill 10 million people. 1 gram of it all divided up and injected into the bloodstream, is fit to kill 10 million people. Poison is very, very effective. The funny thing about that particular poison is exactly the same compound in careful doses is used in Botox. Isn't there something ironic about that? That we will go, not we, some people will go and they will pay money to inject the deadliest poison on earth into their faces in order to cause muscles to sort of paralyze and then not go all floppy. 
poison is very effective. And these Jews are so filled with hatred that they come and they poison the minds of these people. Beware gossip. Beware slander. Be careful, little ears, what you hear. Be careful what you allow to come into your mind. Because poison can be so effective. Now, one moment you think the world of Paul and Barnabas, and the next moment you want them dead. So effective. And what they go on to do in verse 19, so some Jews from Antioch and Iconium came and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul. Now, I might use the phrase, Paul got stoned frequently during the next 10 or 15 minutes. Don't misunderstand me, please. Stoning was horrendous. I don't know what you have in your mind as you picture stoning, but it wasn't pebbles. It was basically the biggest rock that you could lift and throw at someone's head. That was stoning. A crowd of people gathered around you just throwing these huge rocks at you until, frankly, your your head crumbled and you died, obviously. It's an absolutely brutal thing. Brutal. It's still practiced in some parts of the world. Paul brought good news. Paul wanted to help people. Paul wanted to see people restored. He wanted to see them receive life. He wanted to see them know Jesus. He wanted to bless them. They wanted to worship him. They were so excited about the message he brought. But now this, they're chucking stones at his head. And he's in such a bad state that it says in verse 19, they dragged him out of the city thinking he was dead. Now, if they thought he was dead, there are two options. One, he was dead. Two, he was in pretty bad shape. But either way, he was unconscious and he was so messed up from these rocks that they thought he was dead. They dragged him outside the city and they left him and walked off. And the more I've thought about this, I thought, I wonder, does this, and this is me speculating beyond what I've got written in front of me here in the Bible, but I wonder, was this the time that Paul had that experience that he wrote about in 2 Corinthians 12? We talked about this experience of seeing heaven. I wonder, could it have been at this moment? Because in 2 Corinthians 11, he, he talks about his trials and he says about being stoned. And then in 2 Corinthians 12, he goes on to talk about this, these great visions that he has of heaven. May have happened at the same moment, just a thought. But they just leave him for dead. Have you ever taken such a beating that you feel you've been left for dead? Have you had rocks thrown at you? Anybody ever had a rock thrown at them? Or a whole lot of rocks thrown at you? Life experiences that have left you for dead. Just bloodied, battered, bruised, wrecked, and just left in a heap. Because life will do that to you. And people will do that to you. And frankly, it's the devil that is behind trying to destroy the life of a human being. Have you ever had rocks thrown at you? Many different forms. You could maybe picture rocks with things written on them being chucked at you. It it might have been a particular relationship. And just you've been pounded by what happened due to that. It has pounded you and pounded you. And you just feel I have taken so many rocks that I've been left for dead. It could be disappointment. It could be being abandoned by somebody. 
It could even be church or religious experiences that, that have pounded you to the point that you've just been left in a heap. It could be your health. It could be your finances. It could be the accusations of the enemy. It could be whenever he drags up your past and throws it at you. It could be when you wrestle in your thoughts and you're t- tormented by thoughts that you know are not from God and you know they are not from you, but they're in there in your head just banging around like rocks. And you feel you've just taken so many rocks that you're just left in a heap in the dust like Paul bleeding and either almost dead or dead. And then to flip that round, do you have rocks in your hand that you could chuck at somebody else that you need to drop? Do you have poison in your hand that you could put into the mind of somebody else and you need to pour it out on the ground and walk away from it? You see, I I can choose. Once you get to know somebody, you have two options. You can choose to make them look really good in front of other people or you can choose to make them look really bad. We were at a conference last week and one of the things that that the, the speaker said several times was one of the things that we're called to as Christians is to make people look good. That doesn't mean we gloss over things that we need to challenge, but we are looking for the gold. We're looking to celebrate what's good in people. And all of us, we know enough about people that we can make them look good or we can make them look bad. I choose to celebrate the gold. I choose to drop the rocks, pour the poison on the ground and walk away from that way of living. Because we can all do it. Every one of us, there's a bottle of poison on the shelf that we can reach for if we want and we can affect how, other pe- how people view someone else. Don't do it. Pour it on the ground and leave it and walk away. Every one of us can pick up a rock and write something on it and chuck it at somebody else. Don't do it. Don't do it. I can choose to destroy people or I can choose to build them up. What will it be? So picture this mob then going back into the city, patting themselves on the back. Job well done. We've killed Paul. That's the end of it. That's the end of the gospel. That's the end of the church. That's, that's, we're, we're finished. And their voices fade into the distance as they walk back into the city and he's on his own. I want you to see him whatever way you want to picture it. I want you to see him. He's lying in the dust, absolutely wrecked with rocks, unconscious, maybe coming to you again, I don't know, but just in a heap on his own, Paul, the apostle, arguably one of the greatest men who has ever lived. In fact, definitely one of the greatest men who has ever lived. And what happens next is class. Again, it's, it's, a, it's a narrative, it's, a, it's an account, but the way it's written then just stirs up all these images in me and all these pictures. Because as he's lying there left for dead, verse 20 says, after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. That's your memory verse for the week. <laughs> After the disciples had gathered around him. Picture that. I love it. Paul lying in a heap, wrecked, but around him there are followers of Jesus who gather around. I'd love to know what they said, what they did, what they prayed. But once they are around him, something happens. 
because one who a few moments ago was left for dead by his attackers revives and gets up. Now, whether he was dead or whether he was unconscious, regardless, this is a miracle. He got up, he went back into the city, and the next day he was fit to travel. Something amazing and incredible happened. I want this written in your heart (laughs) when the disciples got around their wounded brother. Something incredible happened. There's a miracle. And don't think of the 12. When you hear the word disciples, don't think that Peter, James, and John and the gang all showed up. It wasn't them. These were probably new converts who probably just the same day or sometime in the past few days had chosen to follow Jesus after hearing Paul's preaching and seeing the miracles. These were probably very young in their faith rather than being established, mature believers. This, this, was not, this is not the job of, of some sort of super disciple. I'm sure you all have in your mind people who you think of as being oh, a super disciple, particularly special one. That's not what we're talking about here. We're just talking about regular followers of Jesus. And they get around Paul, and Paul gets up. And the picture that came into my mind, I was going to show you the clip, but it's so short, it's not worth it, is in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. After Aslan has been killed... And he's tied onto the stone table by these massive ropes. And Lucy and Susan are sitting with him, crying. All of a sudden, can you remember what appears at that point? Anyone? It's a very small part of the story. Can you remember what appears? Something comes and chews the ropes. Nobody? Oh, dear, dear. dear. Ah, yes, it's mice. Well done, you. All these little mice appear. It's actually better in the old animated version that I'm old enough to have watched when I was a kid. But these, these little mice all appear and start chewing the ropes. And that's the picture I had in my mind as I thought of Paul the Apostle lying in a heap and these, these people gathered around him. I pictured these little mice that came to mighty Aslan and chewed the ropes that were tying him down before his resurrection. And what it says there, whenever, whenever it, it says that when they gather around him, he got up. That's the same word in Greek, got up, that Jesus uses when he talks about his resurrection. When he says that the Son of Man will rise again. Exactly the same words. I wonder what would have happened if the disciples had assumed that he didn't need their help. Now listen to me carefully. Have you ever seen someone in trouble and thought, that person can sort themselves out. They're, they're mature in their faith. Now, this is Paul we're talking about. Paul had some pretty big experiences. Yes, he saw Jesus <laughs> on the road to Damascus, bright light, heard a voice, saw Jesus. Not a vision, he saw Jesus. That's pretty big. And you would think then that someone like that could take, after, or, or take care of themselves rightly if they were in trouble. He had his blindness that he was struck with after that bright light. He had that blindness healed. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. As he went around and ministered in places, there were signs and wonders and miracles like we read about earlier in the chapter where the lame man got up. And you could very easily look at someone like that. These disciples could have looked at him and just said, but this is Paul. He'll be okay. Do you ever do that? You look at another believer who you know is struggling and you think, they're quite mature and you think, they'll be all right. They don't need me. They do need you. (laughs) They do need you. 
Don't ever look at someone and, and assume that they're, they're able to cope with something on their own. Get around them. Get around them. Like the disciples around that body lying in the dirt. So that, you know, what, the, the, the danger of them assuming that their help was not needed. Oh, they'll, that person that's lying in a heap, if I go after them, they'll, they'll just feel like I'm fussing over them. They'll just, they'll, they probably want a bit of peace and they'll want to be on their own for a while. No, get around them. <laughs> get around them. Bring a few other disciples with you and get around them. And what if, on the other hand, rather than them assuming that he didn't need help, what if Paul actually maybe was conscious at that point or whatever and was proud and thought himself, I don't need help. I'm invincible. Yeah, you get people like that. And we all, I think we all are very, very susceptible to falling into this trap where we know we're genuinely taking a battering, but there's part of us that says, oh, I can handle this. I can deal with this myself. I don't need any help. I, I'll be able to cope with this. I'm a mature believer. I've walked with God for 20 years or 30 years or whatever. And I'll, you know, I'm going to just flip and stick my chin out and get up and take it like a man. And I'm going to be fine. No, that's pride. That's pride. And it is exceptionally dangerous. One of the greatest lies that every single one of us tells on a very regular basis is, I'm okay. Or I'm fine. <laughs> liars <laughs> you know because you know what we're so polite we don't want to bother people we're not okay we're struggling we've been hit with rocks we're lying on the ground in a heap someone comes along that could help us and we're so polite we say oh, it's alright you just go ahead I'll be fine you won't <laughs> you won't you know something that happens quite regularly in well not regularly but but you know several times a year at least people die in the restrooms or the bathrooms of restaurants. And you know why they die in the bathroom or in the restroom is because at the table they have started to choke. And they haven't wanted to make a scene. They start coughing and spluttering a bit. They don't want to make a scene. They don't want to embarrass other people. They don't want to draw attention to themselves. So, so if they're fit to still do it, they excuse themselves and they go to the bathroom and politely die on their own. And that's what we do sometimes. We take a spiritual onslaught and then we politely allow it to destroy us rather than inconveniencing other people. We need to get out of that mindset. We need to realize, this is Paul. I'm not just talking about some random person. <laughs> this is Paul. And Paul needed help. Paul that day was dead unless the disciples got around him. So don't be thinking that we ever reach a level of maturity that we can somehow rise from things without having disciples around us. Do you understand what I'm saying? We need to have people around us. Putting on a brave face can kill you. Putting on a brave face can kill you. We need to start being honest about the things where we need support and help and people around us. Do you need, does anyone need disciples to stand around you? You've been buffeted, you've been battered. People have been poisoned in terms of how they think of you. Some have thrown rocks at you. You've been left for dead. Do you know what you need? You need to be surrounded by disciples. <laughs> See, if a person fulfills these two categories, I'll give them my heart. If you love Jesus and you love me, I will give you my heart. I will trust you with everything. If I think someone doesn't love me or doesn't love Jesus, 
I'm giving them nothing. <laughs> I won't open up. But, but if you're surrounded by people, no matter how young they are in their faith like these guys, or how insignificant they may appear like the little mice crawling all over Aslan, biting the ropes, if you're surrounded by people who love you and who love Jesus, you are in the safest place on earth. You are in the safest place on earth. When you are battered, don't feel you're an inconvenience. Call three or four disciples, followers of Jesus, and get yourself into the safest place on earth. That can be your kitchen table. Wherever. Be surrounded by people who love Jesus and who love you. And after they get him back on his feet, in verse 20, they gather around him. He got up and went back into the city. <laughs> the city where he had been stoned. The city where the crowd had been poisoned in their minds against him and tried to kill him. He went back into the city. There are some people who, whenever you've had a battering, they will very sincerely say to you, the cost is too high, you've done your best, you just need to give up and leave it. Good people with good hearts, but misguided. There are others, and their very presence around you fills you with life and strength and causes you to get up, wipe the blood and the sweat from your face, and walk back into God's calling for your life. Those are the people we need around us. Just being in their very presence strengthens you. Do you know people like that? I know you do because you know each other and I know you are those people. <laughs> when you get people like that around you, you just go away stronger. He goes back to the call of God on his life. In verse 21, they, they move on to Derby and they win disciples there. And then they go back to Lystra. At the end of verse 21, you just won't leave the place. He goes back again, back into this city. And when he gets there, I'm nearly done. Look at what his mission is. It says in, in verse 22, so they've returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. And what do they do? They're strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain in the faith. A mission of encouragement. I love the word encouragement. Cur comes from the French word, which means heart. So encourage means to put something into the heart of someone. Strengthen them. You have two different people in this chapter. You have two different mindsets. You've got the ones who want to poison the mind at the start of the chapter. You've got these people who want to come and put poison in the mind. But then you've got Paul and Barnabas and they want to come and put strength in the heart. Which will we be? <laughs> I don't want to be known as someone who poisons the mind. I want to be known as someone who strengthens the heart. I want to put something into you, not your mind, your heart, not poison, strength. That was Paul's encouragement. After he'd taken this awful battering, that was his mission, to go and to build the people up. Because they were probably pretty discouraged at what they had saw him go through. And he goes back to the city and he encourages them. And he puts strength in them. I love that. Goodness me, there's so much in a few verses. There's so much. <laughs> what do you want to be? What sort of person? Last verse is, is 22 at the end of it. He says to them, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. I'm reminded of a Cheryl Crow song of all things. This is going way back. This is 90s, folks. 
90s. She had a song hidden away in her first album and the line in it said, no one said it would be easy. No one said it would be this hard. (laughs) The kingdom of God is not an easy life. And there are times when you will sit and you'll think to yourself, no one said it would be easy, but I really didn't expect it to be as hard as it has been. This is not an easy road. Jesus called it a narrow road. And he said there are few that find it. Whenever we choose to follow one who was crucified, we cannot expect to have an easy ride. This is a difficult path. And it is through many hardships that we enter the kingdom of God. So whenever there's hardship in your life, which is probably fairly regular, be encouraged. Because a Christian life without hardship and challenge is a contradiction. I would be really concerned about anyone who says, there's no hardship in my life, there's no suffering, there's no challenge, it's all just a a breeze. There's something seriously wrong, because that's not the path. We don't go and look for these things, but they come with the territory of following a crucified God. Like Paul, Jesus had a resurrection. But unlike Paul, Jesus didn't need anyone's help. His resurrection proves that he conquered death, conquered the grave, paid the price for sin, and he is the only one who can offer eternal life to those who come to him. I love resurrections. I just love it. Whether it's Jesus, whether it's Paul getting up out of the dirt here, whether it's Lazarus, whether it's in a movie where someone's left for dead and they rise up and fight again, whatever it is, I love resurrections. So, do you need some disciples to gather around you and help you up? Or do you need to be a disciple who gathers around someone else and helps them up? If you're in that position and you know you've taken a battering, you know you've taken a stoning, please do not politely die on us, okay? Don't do that, you know? We don't want to... We don't want to gather around and remember you by saying this person was so polite that they allowed their life to be wrecked and didn't burden us by telling us about it. No. Before you leave the building, go to someone and say, you know what, I just need two or three people to get around me and to get me back up and back into the city doing what God's called me to do. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. And I thank you, Father, that there is so much power in it, Lord. It's just... It's an endless, bottomless well of of life-giving water. Thank you for the truth. Thank you for your spirit who takes your word, Lord, and, and just drives it into the depths of our hearts and our lives. Father, I pray for every single one here and anyone else who would listen at a later stage. Lord, I pray, God, that none of us would be so polite and so determined to not inconvenience people that we would sneak off somewhere and quietly die alone. That is not your will, Father. I pray, God, for those who have had rocks thrown at them, Lord, and they know who they are and they know what the rocks are and they know where the wounds are. I pray, Father, that even this morning they would cry out to your people and to you and they would say, come and get round me and help me up. I thank you for the power of community, Father. I thank you for the power of friendship. I thank you, Lord, that when we're in the company of people who love you and who love us, that there is literally no safer place on this planet that we could be. 
So Lord, I pray you'd give us all the ministry of encouragement to one another, an awareness to know when people are being battered. And Lord, to even take the risk like those disciples who probably thought I could get stoned myself for helping this guy, but still I'm going to help. I'm going to stand alongside him. Hallelujah.